Good morning, Church of the Valley. And so excited to be here this morning. Uh, like I said, my name, oh gosh, yep, Go, okay. Go ahead and get out of the way. You may or may not be doing that at the end when I'm done. Uh, man, I, I'm excited to be here, to be uh, just preaching uh, with you guys. And uh, man, it is one of uh, my greatest pleasures to be able to preach God's word and to be able to partner with other churches in doing that. Um, man, if you guys have been here in ministry in Utah for any amount of time, you know that man, we need partnership. We need gospel partnership here in the Valley. And uh, man, I've been friends with uh, Wes and Liz Shellnut for, for a long time now. And just to be able to partner and come alongside each other and be able to support one another in ministry is such a massive, massive blessing to me, and I hope it is for them as well. And so, man, thanks for having me. Uh, just a little bit about myself. Uh, man, I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Any Texans in here? There's always a few. There's always a handful around here. And uh, I just want to apologize on our behalf. We are very proud to be Texan. Um, and so if you have to talk to one of us for a little bit and you hear about Texas, I'm sorry, but that's just how it goes. Um, but yeah, I was born in Houston, Texas. I lived there for my entire uh, childhood. It's very hot and humid and gross, and I don't recommend it, uh, but it's going to be the best food you've ever had in your life. Um, and uh, yeah, I moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, and lived there for my entire adult life. That's where I met uh, my wife, Abby. We met at church, and um, we got married about three years ago. And uh, man, it's been awesome. It's been so much fun. And so we moved here to Utah about two and a half years ago. And uh, so most of our marriage has just been here in Utah. So it's been a really beautiful thing. Um, and our first baby, he was born seven months ago. Uh, yeah, we named him Jonah, I guess because I'd rather have a son who does everything I want him to, but is a little upset about it rather than being completely disobedient. Um, <laughs> But uh, really, my, my understanding of the gospel has grown with each passing moment that I've been a father. Um, that's not to say that it didn't before being a father, but I can clearly see how Jesus uh, is using this privilege in my life to shape me into his own likeness. And so if you're a parent, if you know, you know, right? Um, and although I'm just seven months in, I have hopes and dreams for my son, uh, and honestly, that he'll probably fall short of. Um, he's he's going to let me down, and the truth is, I'm going to do the same thing to him, that I'm going to let him down. He's going to expect big things of me, to behave a certain way, uh, to be something I may not be, and he'll be disappointed. And you don't have to have children to experience this. Um, every single one of us in this room knows what it's like to have expectations that are unmet. We all know what it feels like to be let down. We all know what it feels like to let someone else down. Uh, and this is the lens, the, the point of view that I think we can view this particular passage and let it encourage us and lift us up. And so what exactly is going on in our text this morning? Well, last week you heard from Boyd Bettis, and he gave some context to, to this particular passage, specifically that this section is typically called the high priestly prayer. You see, Jesus wraps this time of teaching and his uh, disciples and helping them understand his plan and expectations of them uh, with this spontaneous prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus revisits themes of his lessons over the past few chapters, attributing everything to God the Father, petitioning him for things. It really is something that uh, teaching and preaching pastors can learn from because we've all heard a few disjointed sermons, haven't we? Um, and I, I pray that this isn't one of them. But, but masterfully, 
masterfully as Jesus always does. He prays in our section, affirming that the disciples are truly his, that they were given to him by the Father, and that the Father would protect and keep his disciples. There are just a few things I want to point our uh, attention to for now. But this work that we're about to do in listening to what God is saying to us this morning, it's going to be fruitless if we don't completely declare our dependency on the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to pray for our time, and then we're going to jump right into it. So pray with me. Father, would you slow us down? Our lives are so hurried and so urgent and... More often than not, we we skip over the things that you might have for us, God. And so I pray right now in this moment, in this room, that you would help to slow us down. That you would do the work of softening our hearts to be able to receive what you have for us this morning. That you would remove the scales from our eyes to see your light and your glory. That you would unplug our ears to be able to hear what you have for us. That we would follow it and our lives would be changed because of it. God, I pray that uh, if there are any in this room who are feeling discouraged, that you would use this sermon to encourage them. And God, I pray for those who do feel encouraged, that you would use this to, to completely dig deeper roots in the gospel and our lives in it. And so it is only by your spirit that we can receive anything this morning. And so God, would you help me to speak, that these wouldn't be my own words, but that they would, they would be yours God, I pray that you would be with the people here in this room, that they would be able to do the work of hearing this sermon. God, you are good. We acknowledge that. And so would you be with us? Be gracious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I mentioned that our experience of letting people down and being let down would be helpful, but why? Well, because in our passage, we see the perfectly aligned hearts of the Son and the Father, resulting in potent prayer, prayer that will absolutely be answered. Jesus isn't letting the Father down. The Father isn't letting Jesus down. Perfectly aligned hearts, perfectly aligned wills. Now, I doubt that any of us have experienced this kind of alignment before. Maybe we've seen it in glimpses. I think the closest thing that I've gotten to this kind of alignment is a Uh, Me and my wife, we played the game where you count to three and then you say a random word and then you count to three again and you try to say the same word. Has anyone ever played this game? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it's, it's a weird, goofy game, but we've gotten it in like one try. Not the very first word, but the second word, and I felt pretty aligned with my wife in that time. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, we, we must think that when Jesus prays, the Father is listening. There is an alignment that is happening here. And not only is he listening, but he is ready to answer his prayers favorably. So if we know that the Father will answer the prayers of his son Jesus, what does this mean for the disciples? What happens as they are hearing their teacher, their friend, their Savior, their Lord, the Son of God? What happens to them? Well, today I just want to focus on on two big things that I believe happens to the disciples. And here's the first. The disciples are given strength. The disciples are given strength. Now, as I read through the Gospels, I'm seldom, seldom impressed with how these 12 men Jesus called to himself act. Uh, Oftentimes, we're left with kind of a dumbfoundedness uh, at at the way that they act, the way that they argue, what they say, the questions they ask. Um, And even though they're able to confess 
that Jesus is the Christ, we have an instance where, where Peter, you know, we always pick on Peter, I'm, I know, I know we do this, but, but after, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, just a few verses later in Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying that he has to die. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. This is, this is what it says. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How do we think Peter felt about that? What do we think that he thought after his teacher called him Satan? Oh, funny joke, Jesus. That's really funny. Or do we think, oh, well, that wasn't very nice. Why'd you do that, Jesus? No, here's the thing. I, I imagine that Peter took a moment to look deep down within his soul to find the wrong that he had done to Jesus. Because if Jesus says it, it's true. If Jesus says it, there's no getting around it. And so Peter, the one whom Jesus says that he would build his church upon, Peter's faith and understanding probably takes a massive blow during that interaction. And this isn't just Peter. We have other stories of the disciples being ignorant to Jesus' teachings. According to Jesus, they had moments of little faith. They were rebuked for a lack of understanding. They fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. These men weren't superstar, uh, religious elite folk. They were common men with common problems, much like us. They fell short of the glory of God just like we do. And yet Jesus says of them in his prayer here in our text, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. And this is what Jesus says about them. And they have kept your word. These common men with moments of ignorance, with moments of unbelief, with moments of anger, they have kept God's word. And if they were anything like us, which they were, before hearing this prayer, knowing that their faith was brittle, fearful of losing their beloved teacher, they wouldn't have reason to feel strong. Jesus just gets done teaching them that they're going to be scattered, that they're going to face trial, persecution. But as Jesus begins to pray for them, the disciples hear the words of Jesus rising up like a sweet melody to the Father. What was once unsure in the disciples was now made sure. What was once shaky in the disciples was now made firm. What was once weak in the disciples was now made strong. Jesus' prayer strengthens the disciples. But why would they be strengthened by this prayer? Well, it's for the exact reason that we talked about earlier. The heart of the Father and the heart of Jesus the Son are completely and perfectly aligned. Therefore, when Jesus prays, the heavens open up and the kingdom of God manifests itself more and more here on earth. In short, when Jesus prays, the Father gives. When Jesus prays, the Father gives. And what could be more invigorating, life-giving, strengthening than hearing Jesus pray for you? And so the disciples, in full and complete trust of what Jesus has prayed, they know that the Father will keep them. They know that the Father will protect them from the evil one. They know that the Father affirms their belief because Jesus affirms their belief. This is an amazing and glorious truth. The second thing is this. The disciples are given joy. Number two is the disciples are given joy. 
Now, if you flip back uh, to chapter 15 of John, starting in verse 9, this is what Jesus teaches them. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And then we go back to our text in John 17. In verse 13, this is what Jesus prays. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says that all of his teaching results in a fullness of joy in his disciples. But it's one, to, one thing to hear this taught to you, like in chapter 15. And it's another thing to hear it prayed over you, like in chapter 17. Tell me this. Um, raise your hand if you've ever gone through something really hard and someone came to you and said that they will pray for you or that they are praying for you, but you don't actually know if they did. Raise your hand if this has happened to you. Yeah, it's happened to a few of us, yeah. Now, because we're kind people, we don't often assume that those people are going to forget about us in our prayers. We assume that their, their intentions are good. And sometimes it, it makes us feel just a bit better. Now, raise your hand if you've gone through something hard and someone came to you and said, can I pray for you? And then they prayed for you right then and there. Raise your hand if you've experienced this. I don't have to tell you that it is infinitely better to receive prayer right then and there in the midst of your pain, your sorrow, your uncertainty, than it is to maybe receive it in someone else's quiet time. To receive instant prayer like this, it reminds me of how J.C. Ryle talks about deep, deep friendship. This is what he says about it. He says, this world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. And then this is the important part. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Jesus, the best of friends, takes it upon himself to half the disciples' troubles and then double their joys. He does this by praying for them. And as he prays that his joy may be complete in them, I can't help but think of those men around that table beginning to well up with delight, rejoicing, and gladness. Their hearts begin to fill to the brim with the pleasure of knowing that when Jesus prays for their joy, it's going to be given to them. It's going to be given to them. Now, I want to do just a little bit of excavation here on this concept of Jesus' joy being fulfilled in the disciples and also us. Um, I believe that this is so important and so pivotal because we read later in the subsequent books and letters of the Bible that it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies for followers of Jesus. Many, if not all of them, were very quickly robbed of the comforts and pleasures that those who didn't follow Jesus had. Followers of Jesus were persecuted, mocked, beaten, and killed. These things don't create the kind of soil for normal joy to grow and thrive in. Not an earthly joy, anyway. And Jesus wasn't shy about this truth. Over and over, time and time again, Jesus taught his followers that they would face opposition as a result of following him. 
Everything that they had found joy in would be completely stripped back, and the only thing left standing would be him, Jesus, the Son of God. And so in his teaching, in his prayer, Jesus emphasizes that it is his joy that will last, that it is his joy that sustains us to be able to face tomorrow. And he has given us his words that his joy may be full in us, not just a small trickle. It might feel that way sometimes, but a fullness of joy that is everlasting. Now, what I love is that there's actually this interplay between strength and Jesus' joy, that these two things almost feed into each other to create more of themselves in our lives. I am most joyful in Christ when I feel strong in him, and I am the most strong in him when I feel his joy. Now, this year I've resolved to read the entire Bible, as many people do this time of year, right at the beginning, right? Um, and the, the tool that I've chosen to help me read my entire Bible this year is the McShane reading plan. Is anyone familiar with the McShane plan? Um, so the McShane plan is about four chapters a day, and uh, after 21 days of being in it, it's already put me in places in the Bible that I wouldn't necessarily seek after or choose out myself. Um, and so now I'm in the book of Nehemiah. I promise this is relevant. Um, but, and for a little bit of context, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he is given permission to lead the charge to rebuild Jerusalem's walls during their exile. And uh, after they finish the repairs, Ezra, who's a priest and a scribe, he reads the book of the law of Moses uh, to all the people, which causes like great worship to break out for God, uh, but also great repentance and mourning because they were faced uh, with how they have broken the law. And so I want to read what happens after that in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you like flipping your Bible, I'll give you a chance to skip there, Nehemiah chapter 8. And we're going to read verse 9 through 12. So again, this is after the word of the Lord is being read to the people and worship and repentance break out. This is what it says. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, amen, and drink sweet wine, amen. That one, not so much. <laughs> and send portions, to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For what? The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Y'all catch the important part in there? The joy of the Lord is your strength. One more time. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's it. That's the whole sermon. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It is God's joy that gives you strength. Not your circumstance, not your resources, not your doing, but God's joy that gives you strength. Jesus knows that our joys are prone to be based on sinking sand. 
And so here he prays that in his followers, his joy, the joy of the Lord, will be in them and give them strength. What's more is that very last part of the passage uh, that I read uh, says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I'm going to say that one more time. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Similarly, when the disciples understand and believe in the words declared to them by Jesus, they are given joy. In our passage, Jesus tells the Father, this is John 17, verse 8, I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Just as the Hebrew people rejoiced because they understood the words declared to them, the disciples are given joy because they have received the words of Jesus. Do we believe that Jesus is true? Do we believe his words? Have we truly received them? If we can answer yes to these things, then the joy of the Lord is our strength. Now, I want to take some time to look inward now because we've talked a lot about the disciples and Jesus praying for them. We see and start to understand how the disciples receive and hear this. But how does this apply to us? Uh, now, this is probably stepping a little bit into next week's sermon, um, but I'm not going to be here, so it, I'm not worried about it. Sorry. But here's the thing. We, we must, we must Understand that Jesus prays these things not just for the 11 men who are in front of him, right? It's just 11 because Judas is gone. But he goes on to pray the same things for everyone that will follow him, every single one of us. And then I was reminded of Romans 8. Now, if you haven't read Romans 8 or uh, Paul's letter to the Romans at all, um, you're missing out. And Romans 8 specifically is, is one of the most beautiful assurances that we have of God's love towards us in Christ. And so I just encourage you, if you, if you have time this week, make some time to read it because it, it is amazing, encouraging, uh, great, great chapter of the Bible. Uh, but towards the end of, uh, of the eighth chapter, Paul speaks of the love, uh, the love of God and God's ability to completely hold us fast to himself. Now, if anyone in here is familiar with, with the end of Romans 8, can somebody, somebody tell me where it says that Jesus is right now? Right hand of the Father. And Wes, what, what is he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's interceding. This is, this is what it says exactly. This is in Romans 8, verse 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do we understand that, friends? Jesus is right now, currently, interceding for us. He is praying, speaking to the Father on our behalf. Now, for a long time when I read this passage, it felt like just a little mystical. Like I didn't really understand what it meant for Jesus to be interceding for us to the Father. Was he asking for um, more grace due to our failures? Was he asking God to like hold back his wrath on us because we were acting stupid again? I mean, maybe. 
Maybe. But as you start to lay Jesus' high priestly prayer over Romans 8, you you begin to see the types of prayers that Jesus is raising up to God on our behalf. That he is now currently affirming our small and weak faith as he did for the disciples. That he is now currently asking for the Father to protect us from the evil one. This is good news, friends, because we have a Savior who is constantly praying on our behalf for our strength and our joy. Just as Jesus prayed for his closest friends, he is now praying for you and me. I don't want to assume that everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus. Listen, if, if you're here and you, and you don't know where you stand with all this, maybe you're just trying this whole thing out and you haven't heard the name of Jesus until you came into this room, or maybe you've lost your faith and you are desperately trying to regain it. Know this, know this, friends. Jesus invites you into the safety of his embrace. That's what he's doing right now. He desires that you would be one of his followers to be able to give you true strength and true joy. This is where you stand with him. And he's waiting for your response. And I or many other people in this room, we we can tell you story after story of how we've seen him sustain us in our darkest moments and in our deepest sorrows. And sometimes it's hard. But because we know and understand his words, as the story in Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We might be getting done a little bit earlier than you expected, but I I, want to close by just reading this Romans 8 passage over us. Like I said, this this is some of the most beautiful scripture that we have, I think, in my personal opinion. I just want to read Romans 8, starting in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And know this, if you are in Christ, this applies to you. If you haven't accepted Jesus, know that this is available to you. This is the kind of security and safety that our God offers. Here it is, Romans 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here it is, friends. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we we acknowledge that you are strong. And so, God, in this moment, we, we ask for strength. We pray that you would give it to us. And, God, we know that only true joy can come from you. And so we ask that you would give it to us. God, we're sorry and we repent for all the ways that we've tried to find strength and joy in other things. And so, God, right now in this moment, would you help us to come to you humble in awe of what you've done for us in Jesus and help us to know and trust in your love. Help us to be encouraged that the Son is interceding for us to you. Help us to see all the ways that you're moving in our lives. We are in desperate need for for you, for your movement, for your work, for your power. And so, God, bring us to the end of ourself. Help us to find you. Help us to see you. Help us to trust in you. Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.